0: Get to So if you have your Bibles, let's look in John chapter 7 verse 53 through 8 chapter 11. Let me read it for you. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. An intriguing story in terms of just the events that have, have taken place. You had a woman that's pulled from the bed of a lover who's not her husband. I mean, the Bible is clear that She was in the act. And so in the process of these things, you get this sense that in some sense, this is a setup, as though they were sort of watching and waiting for someone to fail, just so that they could throw this sin in front of Jesus, expose her to the masses, because it tells us that there are tons of people there listening to Jesus' teaching. You just imagine the weight and the gravity of shame that this woman must have felt She's pulled and thrown and cast in front of Christ, expecting and waiting to receive her condemnation. Her accusers have already condemned her because they've already told her very specifically and told Jesus what should happen. They're knowledgeable. And the law of Moses says that she should be stoned. And they're accurate. But in the process of that reality, they're just desiring to trap Jesus. Their motives are totally off. They want to make sure that they can expose that Jesus isn't the grace-filled, loving God that he communicated to be, but he's also not the faithful rabbi that's been teaching the truth of God's word. You can't have both. How many times have we felt like that in the context of our own walk with the Lord? It seems as though we encounter the reality of our own lives and we look at brokenness and we realize our own inadequacies and impurities that exist inside of our own heart. And we look at religion and we look at even the truth of God's word and we say, I'm not supposed to live this way. These habits and these hang-ups, and these, these tendencies and these sinful decisions and these behaviors just don't line up with what I know God has called me to be. But I don't know what to do. And then we feel like we were thrown into the public arena, and our only response is shame. We don't know how to deal with how Jesus is going to encounter the moment where brokenness is 100% absolutely on display. There is no question that she is caught in the act of sin. She's not trying to defend herself against her sin, she's not standing there saying, Oh, it's not my fault. She's just there, thrown by her accusers in front of Christ. And I think that that's the challenge. Is that the, the overt sin that leads to shame and the covert sin of self righteousness are both worthy of attention? Because there is one person in this text that is aware of her sin, there's a group of people in this text that are unaware of their sin. That they've weaponized truth and their motives are just to be able to trap Jesus so that they can continue on with their own life. And I would submit to you this morning that that is just so frequently, often, postures that are taken with regards to religion. We are able to deal with the labels of sin. We are terrible at dealing with the people who are sinning. Correct? There's that challenge that we face where we can say, yes, the Word tells us that this is sinful behavior and sinful decisions. But we would rather leave it there rather than deal with the, the, the actual individuals who are struggling with such said sin. The best place that she could be, the woman caught in adultery, is at the feet of Jesus. She just didn't know it. I mean, there's that sense in which, as we even think about the brokenness that surrounds us and and the world and the challenges and all of these sins that continue to mount that are on full display for everyone to see. Get on Instagram, get on Facebook, watch the news. I mean, it's just as though we live in this culture where everything is being videoed and we are all willing so quickly to pass judgment of saying this is wrong, this is right, and here's what we don't have. The ability to see the person for who they are to understand the challenges that exist, the story behind the story. I mean, if Chuck had shared his story and talked about all of those moments where he had been left to his own devices and used and, and, and struggling in the context of the world, there would have not been many people who would have just not dismissed him as someone who just so consumed by drugs or alcohol that they're not sure there's any hope for him. And yet that's not what Jesus does. Ever. That there's a pursuit, that even Chuck's words this morning about just don't give up on them because somehow in some way Christ is pursuing them in ways that we can't see. It's the song we sung, the first song we sung this morning. I see ashes, you see beauty. So I think part of what the Lord is doing in the context of this text is, is redefining or shifting the lenses from which we view our own sin and specifically the sin of others. To ask ourselves, has there been places in the context of our own journey with Jesus that we have weaponized truth to feel better about ourselves? Where we've looked at someone else's sin and we've said, man, I'm thankful that's not me. That we've seen the shame and the weight that others carry as they struggle with habitual challenges and addictions or even ourselves ourselves. Where we would even say, I know my own brokenness. And if anybody found out, I would be embarrassed. And yet, at the feet of Jesus is the only place to go. And so Jesus moves into this reality of what begins to take place. And so the Pharisees and the scribes throw this woman um, who is caught in adultery and says, you know, teacher, the woman has been caught in the act. And law of Moses says you have to stone her. So now he gets to be the final judge. And here's what's interesting is that Jesus exposes all of the sin of everyone present. That it's not just about the overt sin of her sexual behavior, but it's the covert sin of the Pharisees and the scribes that equally must be dealt with. Both of them are serious and egregious against what God would have them be and to do. And so, it's interesting because here's what happens. One of the most unique moments in the Bible, and there's a lot of debate on what happens here. But they said this to test him in verse 6. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Did that strike you at all? Like, that's just weird. Like, what? What did he write? I mean, literally, what was he, what was he scribbling? I mean, was this just like... Doodling Jesus who was born with the Pharisees? I, I don't know. But I think it's intriguing. So here's some options that I would just invite you to wrestle with as you think about what the Lord could be doing. One scholar had mentioned in thinking about Jeremiah chapter 17 in the sense that as, as, as God is dispensing judgment on the nation, he's saying that those who are living in defiance will have their names written on the earth. It's kind of intriguing to think about, maybe. But if you start to do a study on the finger of God, if you're thinking Jesus writing with his finger, this is the finger of God, where else would it go? Well, they're ready to, to dispense and tell Jesus how to be able to, to, to use the law against those who are in sin. Jesus starts to write down Exodus thirty-one 18. I'm actually the author of the law, right? He wrote the law with his finger on tablets of stone. Maybe... Pretty intriguing. One of the ones that really intrigues me is the story of Daniel. And the story of Daniel where there's this whole thing with Belshazzar and these things going on. And there's this writing on the wall by the finger of God that they couldn't understand. And in the process of that, there's these four words that were written in Persian. And in the context, all of it tells us is this. Is that, as, as Daniel translated, one of the things is, I have seen your deeds. And I have found you wanting. Huh? Boy, well, you like just like, I think how tactical Jesus is to, to embed himself in the issues of self-righteousness. Well, whatever might be the reason. Nobody knows what Jesus wrote. And maybe one day I'd love to know, you know, what, what were you doing on the ground where these Pharisees were just accusing you of all of these things? But not the least of which is not only is Jesus encountering the shame of a woman who is is, has been caught in sin, but he is also highly committed to a self-righteous religious elite who thinks that they know better and think that they are better, and addressing that head-on in the context of those things. And so this is how he does it. He says, let, them, let him who is without sin be the first to cast the first stone." Now, in order to pass judgment on a woman who has been caught in sin, you have to analyze your own heart and realize that maybe, just maybe there's sin inside your own heart that is worthy of punishment as well. Jesus forces self-reflection. See, that's what happens when we weaponize truth, is we weaponize it in such a way that we want to apply it to others. and <laughs> eh, not so great at applying it to ourselves. Like, it's not as though these Pharisees are saying, hey, I'm really concerned about the life of this woman. She seems to be making poor decisions. Jesus, would you help her? It's just that they would leverage her sin to get the outcome they desire. It's not grace, nor is it really truth. It's self-righteous motivation to achieve ends, and they are blind to it, in part, because what do they do? There's some level of self-reflection that takes place, right? They realize that if that's the criteria for me being able to stone this woman, that I have to be sinless and being able to cast judgment on someone else, I'm, I'm going I'm to fade away into the background. And that's what it says. They left one by one, from the oldest to the youngest. Just imagine the scenario, right? How embarrassing it would have to be. They thought that they had Jesus trapped. And yet in the process of those things, Jesus intrudes into their life and deals specifically with the reality that they don't see the gravity of their own sin. I think that that's an important truth for us. That that the Lord wants to be able to be the God who dispenses grace and mercy and fullness, that it's without limit, without measure, There's a care and a concern that all of our brokenness, all of our frailty could be exposed before the world and laid before the feet of Jesus. And how would he respond? Through faith, the words would be similar. Neither do I condemn you. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for, for what? For those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life is, what he set you free from the law of sin and death. I mean, this is this is like a, a Romans 8 experience, right, for this woman, where she's realizing that the very thing that she thought she'd never had, she received by Jesus. Dignity, value, significance beyond her sin. Even competing against the shame and exposure that she felt before the crowd. Jesus identifies her. Amplifying the sin of others is a telltale sign of self righteousness. I think that that's a place that we need to guard and protect against. It's not as though Jesus is watering down truth or saying that she didn't sin. But if there's a place in our own hearts where we would feel our sin is less significant than others, self righteousness is taking up root. There's a place in which we're not realizing the gravity of our own propensities and our own heart struggles. That you, as much as the woman caught in adultery, me, as much as the woman caught in adultery, need to save the save mercy of Jesus. We have no hope otherwise. There's no other option besides being exposed before the feet of Jesus and knowing that he offers a level of condom- uh, lack of condemnation because of faith. I don't condemn you either and sin no more. Step into the reality that your life has changed because of an encounter with Jesus. I think that's where he moves us. And so I think one of the things that I would uh, just try and communicate to you, there's a, uh, a quote um, that uh, was, is, is really helpful by John Newton. So many of you know the story of John Newton. He, he, he was a slave trader who wrote the story, wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. God got a hold of his heart, changed his life. And so we sing that song because he realized how how significant his sin was and realizing how, how amazing God's grace is in the midst of those things. So as the author of Amazing Grace, he wrote this little poem, if you will, that I'd like to read for you as he reflected upon just evaluating his own life. Here's what he said. In evil, long I took delight, awed by shame or fears, till a new object met my sight. And stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. Who fixed his languid eyes on me. And near his cross I stood. Sure never to my latest breath shall I forget that look. It seemed to change me with his death. Though not a word he spoke. A second look he gave me which said I freely all forgive. My blood was for thy ransom paid. I died that thou mightst live. I think for someone, for all of us, if we were able to see the gravity of our brokenness and to to look in into those those nooks and crannies of our heart that just are are really broken and, and apart from what the Lord would have for us, we would then be able to realize how vast. And merciful grace is. I think that's what the Lord does in our lives. Is is those two things have to run in, in parallel with one another. Why is grace so amazing and so sufficient and so powerful? Because my sin is so egregious and so horrific and so deplorable. That I am at the mercy of the only one who can judge. The one without sin. Isn't that interesting that the sinless one who's doodling on the ground, who knows what he's writing, is actually the only one that is able to condemn? Because they said he was without sin. Let him cast the first stone. So Jesus had every right as the sinless one to condemn this woman for her sin. But what does he do? He offers her mercy. Say the same is true for you and for me. I don't have some pithy statement. I have an invitation for you this morning. Come. Come to the feet of Christ. Knowing that what you will receive is not a judgment of condemnation, but a freedom from your sin. That the shame that you've carried through the context of your story and the embarrassment that exists in the context of your journey, whether it's covert sin or overt sin, come Don't convince yourself that you don't have needs. Don't convince yourself that somehow in some way I am more righteous or better than anyone else. come as those dependent upon the reality of Jesus. We look to the cross and we know that only in him and his gaze do we find life. And so not only is this woman's story of being caught in the act of adultery. Wiped away by an entrance and encounter with Christ. But the willingness for Jesus to deal with those who are self-righteous is equally the same. The invitation exists to all. Come. Trust that the tender hands of Christ and his grace and mercy are more than enough for your sin. Let's pray.